Hey everyone, this is Josh Peterson, and you're listening to This Ocean Life. I'm hoping that today's episode with Greg is another one that inspires you to get in the water, to recharge, and make some new stories for yourself. And if so, hit me with a follow on Spotify so you can automatically get each new podcast episode as they drop, or go to patreon.com slash thisoceanlifepodcast, where for less than the cost of a cup of Starbucks coffee, you can help support the podcast ongoing. And a huge shout out to Billy Vanderwall from California for being the first Patreon supporter of This Ocean Life. Thank you so much. Now, let's get into today's episode. We had a pod of, uh, I think it was common dolphin surround us. And that must have been 400 or 500 of them. So we stopped in the middle of sound, turned off the boat. They're playing all the way around us. And then orcas came through, got right next to the boat, uh, looked us in the eye, uh, saw, you know, you can see just the intelligence of these animals right there in front of you. It's, uh, it was an amazing experience. That's Greg Norman Jr. sharing a special moment in the Alaskan wilderness, one of many stories of travel, riding boards, pursuing fish, and more from this man of the water today on this Ocean Life podcast. With a family name synonymous with the sport of golf, Greg Norman Jr. has carved out an incredibly deep and well-rounded life in the ocean. From growing up in the waters of Florida to years on Maui, Greg has developed love and skill for riding all types of boards in the water, from surfing, kiting, foiling, to wakeboarding. Adding on to this, a strong passion for the hunt, Greg pushes himself underwater with spearfishing, both reefs and blue water, enjoying getting lost in the flow that Big in the Ocean provides to us all. And throughout, Greg has placed high emphasis on close connection to family and providing greater access to board sports for all with the Shark Cable Park. We started our conversation around the role that the oceans played in his recent engagement to his wife-to-be. It's a pretty rad story. I think uh, congratulations are in order. I've been scoping you out on Instagram. Looks like you just got engaged recently, man. Yeah, I did. Appreciate that, buddy. Our, uh, uh, we're extremely happy. Been together for about two years now. Actually, pretty uh, appropriate to tell you on this kind of uh, format here in this podcast because our first date was spearfishing. Whoa, man. That's yeah. like love at first sight. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly right. Our you're um, the guy you just interviewed, Casey Scott. He's a great friend of ours. He introduced us and uh, uh, became best friends. And obviously now we're engaged. Wow, man. That's pretty awesome, dude. So how, how was that kind of first seeing this really I mean beautiful woman in the water chasing fish? Were you just like locked in from the start then? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. We, we did, to be honest, we did meet before that uh, yeah. spearfishing trip. So uh, we talked a big game. So the real first date we had was a trip over the Bahamas, a day trip with our good friends, Dante and Nikki. And uh, we were diving all morning. It was the first opportunity I had to jump on the boat and allow them to go in the water and spearfish. And um, like I said, we were talking up a big game beforehand. So this was our first <laughs> opportunity to really see if the other one was full of shit or not. <laughs> so uh, it turned out you know, she's been diving her entire life, grew up with her family, going down the Keys and going to the Bahamas. Same thing for myself. So kind of synced. You know how it is when you get to know people with a certain uh, background and education on a subject. You really can just sync and everything works together correctly when you, especially when you're diving over the Bahamas. Yeah. Not to really worry about anything else. So I was on the boat. She was out in the water with Nikki and Dante. She dove down. And I said, if she comes up with a fish right now, I'm marrying this girl. 
and uh, she came up with the biggest hogfish of the day. No so way. that was it for me. I was done. Oh man, yeah, that's a sign. That's definitely a sign, man. It looks like you guys are also yeah. doing other stuff in the water, like surfing or some shots. Like you guys are both just focused on the ocean together. That's so cool. Yeah, she's an incredible, adventurous girl. Uh, take her everything from elk hunting in the mountains of yeah. Colorado to uh, Fiji to go surfing and spearfishing there for for pelagics and surfing uh, swimming pools outside of Tavaru and Namotu. We have a lot of good fun together, and I think that's the uh, the key to relationship is being best friends and having fun together. Solid, man. Yeah, I totally agree. You know, what's interesting, like kind of checking you out, as I mentioned on Instagram and everything, and there's a lot of good, you know, articles about you, bios, et cetera. You know, with a, with a family name that's synonymous with golf, you yourself have this super deep, broad uh, life of the, of the ocean. I mean, we're talking about spearfishing, surfing, just traveling, you're foiling, you are big in kiteboarding and a lot of other stuff. So, Take us through that, man. Like how, how, where all that came to be this really rich sort of connection uh, and experience in the ocean for you? Well, it's no secret that uh, my dad is Australian. He's true blooded Australian. He grew up on the beach going up and down the coast of Sunshine Coast down to uh, the Gold Coast, surfing everything from Snapper to Burley Heads all the way up to Noosa. So that was part of his rich history and lifeblood as a kid. And then on the other side as well, he'd go up to uh, Lizard Island and go spearfishing with his best best mates. And mm -hmm. that really was his transition to golf is when he had to put surfing in, um, you know, the, the waves behind him, fear of getting hurt. But he always stayed with it. And so when I got old enough, he immediately got me involved with the ocean, got me involved with surfing, uh, got me up on a board. And I can't remember, four or five years old. And I've been addicted to it ever since. Uh, from the spearfishing side, he would take us over the Bahamas and throw a tank on our back, a you know, 50, oh, 50 wow. liter tank, and push us down to the bottom at 80 feet with him, of course. But he would um, you know, teach us as we go and teach us to be in situations. So we knew how to handle ourselves uh, when we were in any type of situation. Um, my sister is uh, included in this conversation. He would take us down to 80 feet when we we're you know, 8, 9, 10 years old and sneak up behind us and rip our mask off our head, rip the regular out of our mouth. So we knew how to handle ourselves if things go bad because when you are down in the water or anywhere on your own, things will go bad. And be able to have the confidence within yourself to be able to handle yourself in those situations allowed me to go off and really lead a, a different life than him in the ocean. But it all came back from him teaching me everything he loved to do. Yeah. Yeah. Way to go, dad, man. That's like what it's all about, man. I mean, that that's, that's hot. And so he was, your father was an early influence and probably constant and up to today influence as well. Like during that time, were you guys growing, were, did you grow up on the Gold Coast then yourself? No, uh, no. Everyone thinks we might have been, uh, I was born in Australia, but no, I was actually born in Orlando, Florida. Got it. Because uh, that was the capital of golf back then in the early nineties. And then, um, uh, Jack Nicholas, he was living down here in West mm -hmm. Palm Beach. He was really close and is really close to my dad. He told him to move down here to West Palm Beach because of the great golf, the great schools, but the fact we're 60 miles away from the Bahamas and the greatest fishing in the world, uh, hard to say no. So we moved down here in the early 90s and been in Jupiter and Palm Beach County since then. Oh, nice. So you're always like immediately adjacent to the ocean and warm, fun water for for instance to start basically yeah exactly yeah. and um 
while I love golf, I still love golf. I'm obsessed with golf. Uh, it really, the ocean what got me right off the bat. And surfing got me most first and foremost. But of course, it's Florida. Of course, there's no waves in Florida. And you have to take out uh, other things in order to be able to f- facilitate the, your uh, time in the water. So I got into kite surfing, right. which was, uh, I think, is one of the best board sports for Florida because it you can do everything. You can do so much with it. It's a combination of surfing. It's a combination of wakeboarding, which are two things that are near and dear to me. Right. And that's been a gigantic part, it looks like, of your life is kiteboarding. And that took you, I mean, I think there's maybe a chapter of that whole thing where you spent time on Maui. So talk about that because I know just, again, reading some stuff about you, there was you've been at kiteboarding for a long time and you've been an integral part of like, you know, growing the sport and you're still heavily involved today. So take us through that kind of transition to Maui and just your kiteboarding evolution in general. So kiting really got going in France um, by a couple developers out there, but didn't really take hold until a few guys like Lou Wayman or Elliot LeBeau and started in Hawaii out in Maui. So they transitioned from windsurfing over to kite surfing, kiteboarding. Uh, so when I was really young, I was a avid snowboarder, still am, still love it. But my uh, great friend from Colorado moved out to Maui to start windsurfing. And uh, as soon as she got there, she saw this new sport, kiteboarding, knew I'd love it. So called me up immediately and said, Greg, you got to get out here. You got to learn how to do this. I um, found out I had a little time off in the summertime. So I flew out there learn how to kite. I had um, one of the legends of kiteboarding, Lou Wayman, do a trick called a slim chance over my head when I was body dragging, when I was learning, which is a, it's a wakeboard maneuver. It's a front, it's a heel side front flip with a front side 360 into the flip. Yeah. So I saw you could do all the wakeboarding tricks that you could do behind the boat or the cable park behind a kite. And I was obsessed with cable wakeboarding and I saw kiteboarding as a way to have a cable park in the ocean wherever you want on the go. So right. in the early in 2000, I learned how to do it. Um, by 2002, three, I was getting becoming a sponsored athlete and uh, traveling the world. I, I really gravitated to, like I said, wakeboarding behind the kite. Mm-hmm. And there's many other disciplines behind it, but I love to wakeboard. So I was able to craft a a little niche in kiteboarding where it was a, you know, dedicated hardcore wakeboarding esque style behind the kite. And, uh, from that, from that today, still, I still absolutely enjoy loving on throwing on a wakeboard and going behind the kite. Yeah, man, that's cool. So you're kind of at the, the early stages of it here in the States with focus on Maui. I mean, and then how did it evolve? I mean, was, was windsurfing already kind of in your, 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 your quiver of, of, of fun or did you start your wind experience started with the kite? That started with the kite ended yeah. with the kite. I tried to windsurf one time. I, I can't do it. Yeah. I don't want to do it. It's not for me. <laughs> Same thing with sailing. I'm, I'm not a sailor. Uh, I love Yamahas. I love turning right. on the engine right. and putting the throttle <laughs> down. Um, not to say there's anything wrong with it. Uh, but, um, after college I went back to Maui and lived on Haiku, up in Haiku for a while on Haleakala. I had to drive down to Hokipa every morning, go surfers, go kite. And that's uh, still one of my favorite places on the planet. That Jeez. The community there in Maui is phenomenal. The people there are amazing. Yeah. Uh, it's just, 
it's just one of the most pure places on the planet. Yeah. In my opinion. Yeah. And then just that ability to show up at the beach at Hokipa with both your, just your surfboard and your kite gear and be like, all right, either way I'm covered to go have some fun, you know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, like you said, you could just rock on down with a surfboard and the other hand, your kite. That's one thing you just can't do with windsurfing. You have yeah. so much gear and the travel, uh, to, to travel any place with all the gear of windsurfing is insane. But with kiteboarding, you could throw everything into a surfboard bag. Yep. You could throw everything in the back of your trunk, no matter how small the car is. Go down to the beach, go kite, rig up in five minutes, and then go ride and de-rig in five minutes and throw them back to your car, and you're done. Yeah. I think that's one of the uh, the biggest hangups people have with trying to get into kiteboarding is that they think it's too much to rig up. It's too much to go. Mm-hmm. It's not. Yeah. You learn really quickly how to do it efficiently, and um, really, it's it's nothing. You set up and rig in five minutes yeah yeah so how was that time sort of being a professional athlete you know kiting um and traveling around the world yeah it was great uh really it really was great met some amazing people travel with the same kind of crew uh over and over again different locations uh through the caribbean all the way over to western australia uh there's a town outside of perth called Fremantle, where we hosted a um one of the invitational kiteboarding events in the world where uh, majority of riders from all over the world would come in and we'd set up rails and kickers and sliders to be a, like a wake style event to North Carolina. There's a location there called real kiteboarding. They hosted mm-hmm. the triple S invitational out in the outer banks. And uh, that's, that's one of the best locations on the planet to learn how to kite because they have their setup there. That's such mm-hmm. a great uh, set up for learning. They travel with you on a jet ski behind you. So wow. you always have your coach right behind you. I suggest that to anyone, if they want to learn how to, to ride, to go to real kiteboarding in the outer banks or it's a great establishment. So from, from there, mm-hmm. the outer banks to Western Australia, to Hawaii, um, to South Africa, there, the kiteboarding took me some amazing yeah. places. I think it's uh, on the next level right now. Um, there are kids from Dominican Republic down in South Africa who all they need is a, you know, a second-hand mm-hmm. kite to really take off, and they now are becoming international athletes yeah. traveling the yeah. world. Um, it, it's amazing to see. But where the sport is at versus where it was a decade mm-hmm. ago is a next level above and beyond. Uh, you just have to go look at the Red Bull King of the Air, which was just hosted down in South Africa in Bloberg, outside of Cape Town. Yeah. My good friend Jesse Richmond just won that event. They're going, they're they're throwing mega loops unhooked, forty to fifty mm-hmm. foot in the air, traveling at you know fifty miles an hour. It's it's an extreme sport. It's an action sport. It's it's something like nothing can else be done because it's such a combination of different sports in one. Um, it, it deserves more attention. It deserves more recognition. Of course, it's still extremely small. I mean, it's only maybe six figures worth of people around the globe actually doing it. But um, that should change because the, it's a relatively low cost to get into it. It's something you could do the rest of your life. You don't need to do it at a 100% extreme level every time. It could be something like it really is a, equatable to golf. You can, everyone at any age can participate in it. You don't need to be an athlete to do it. The equipment is so good now to learn on and so efficient to, uh, to derig, to depower, to learn on that 
you can be 67 years old and just put on a harness and just go ride back and forth and enjoy the ocean. Yeah, hundred percent. And it's cool too. Like where I'm in Santa Cruz, I have a bunch of friends who, you know, growing up, you kind of get a little bit disenchanted with the crowds and you're kind of, you know, complaining about all the people in the water. So a lot of people, they pick up the kite cause we have great wind here. Yeah. The water's cold, but there's some kite spots that, I mean, it's, it's other level and they'll come back and be like, Hey, how was your session? Like, dude, I got, you know, 20 waves in 45 minutes and I'm totally taxed. It would take you like three days of surfing in town to yeah. get that, you know, so a lot of people, you can still get that connection. You can still carve a wave. You can just ride downwind. You can just go, back and forth if you want you know the variety is so is totally there you know and i've i've threatened to jump into it i've tried trainer kite and what i've done is i like my first baby step is using the surf wing you know uh just to kind of <laughs> feel the wind which i'm failing failing at right now anyway <laughs> dude surf wing is another thing it's it's very different from kiteboarding and it's it's very difficult it's a combination between windsurfing and and kiteboarding it for sure did you try with the foil did you try it Surfing yeah, 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 it's trippy, you know. Um, yeah, because yeah, I've been surf foiling and and doing that, which so that's cool. And so I just throw the throw the wing out there. But I think the one thing is too, it's like you have to understand the dynamics of wind, you know. And if you're in a spot where it's, I'd say, safe in air quotes, where there's no there's no surf, we have kelp in the water and there's no rocks. Here in Santa Cruz, it's there's very few places like that. So I end up putting myself in weird spots because I can't control exactly where I'm going because I don't know the, <laughs> the angle of the wind and everything. And so I'll yeah. end up like paddling in, escaping sets, you know, dragging my surf wing <laughs> by my toes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I just I just tried it the other day for the first time. It's difficult, man. It, it's something that you got to take a long time to get used to. And it's yeah, like, yeah. like foiling. Foiling is very difficult to get into, but damn, it's the best thing I've ever done in a while. Yeah, foiling's another one, man. And you know, you growing up surfing where it's like just cause you surf, you know how to pop up, you know how to read waves, you know how to ride waves, does not necessarily mean that foiling is gonna be easy, you know? Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. You try to teach surfers how to foil and they are trying to muscle it like they would a shortboard and they get absolutely destroyed while doing it, versus someone who's kind of got a blank slate. It's easier to teach because they're not gonna try to impart their old ways on it but uh you know yeah. here in florida is so much different from santa cruz man you're so lucky over there being california to get the swell of the pacific ocean mm. as opposed to us here down in south florida we get blocked by the bahamas on pretty much every swell right so to have a swell where you could use a shortboard probably is only 14 days out of the year where it's decent and then you get decent you know offshore breeze so yeah. I mean, all you need is a knee-high rolling crappy wave, and foiling is the best thing in the world. And that's what we have <laughs> almost every day here. Yeah, oh, that's awesome. I mean, it, it's a, it is a game-changer when you think about it because what it does, and it's an interesting thing growing up surfing where when you surf, whether it's longboarding or shortboarding, you have a certain like um, model of wave that you really are looking for. And anything outside of that model, um, you don't even really remark upon. But yeah. now with the foil – it opens up this whole new world. You're like, whoa, look at that little cheesy one foot, two foot crumbler that you would never probably even look at before. Now you're kind of like amping to get out on that thing. Yeah, exactly. Find the worst wave possible to surf and that's your best foil wave. Yeah, yeah. And I saw some shots of you on the e-foil where it's like the electronic one where you're just zooming around. How, how is that? Like just sort of pure flat glassy water. Was that thing pretty cool? It's a ton of fun. 
my good friend Damian Leroy, he's kind of spearheading the push out right now of the e-foils. And he's got me on them a few times. They are fantastic, man. They're fantastic for a few reasons. Uh, one, just if you are a foiler and you got the feeling already, cruising on glassy water, uh, just it, it's a great feeling. We have the intercoastal waterway right behind us here in Jupiter. And just to hit it on a, on a sunrise or a sunset session and oh, go wow. for two hours of battery life, it's, it's incredible. But also to get into foiling, I think it's by far one of the easiest ways to teach people how to foil because it's so stable. Yeah. I, I, you know, we've got yeah. people up who've never touched a surfboard before in an hour. Foiling. Oh, wow. That's saying something. Yeah. It's funny because like that versus, you know, being towed behind a boat's definitely helpful. But then like the school of hard knocks where you're trying to catch a wave and learn how to foil, that's super hard. That's what I did. And that's what I have a couple of friends going through. I'm just like, you're just going to fail and be humbled and feel like a total grom again, which is kind of cool. But there's, there takes some time to get it that way. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. The prone surfing on a foil is probably one of the most physically exhausting sports I've ever done in my life. I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know you heard of this, uh, this whoop band, W H O O P. Yeah, I have. It monitors your biometrics. I've, I've used it for a couple different things. This is, surf oiling is by far the most caloric burn, uh, heart rate intensive activity I've ever done. Like after you're done catching a few waves, you're pumping back out and come back around. My heart feels like it's going to explode. Oh, I've yeah. burned, I burned a thousand calories in a 45 minute <laughs> session doing it. <laughs> it's a new, new weight loss secret right there, man. <laughs> I'm telling you, man, it's, it's everything. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's cool. So talking about, um, kind of back to kiting just a moment. Uh, there's a, I'd love to hear a story from you. You have, it, it sounds like it took place. I don't know. I, multiple years ago where you're up in the Prince William sound in Alaska. It sounds like an epic quest with a buddy to do some wakeboarding and kiting in freezing cold water with, you know, next to basically North America is like one of our largest glaciers up there. Uh, talk, what were you doing up there? And then also talk about, sounds like there was kind of a sketchy moment kind of boating out of there where you guys were kind of on pins and needles. Oh my God. Yeah. Where, where did you get this story from? That's, that's, that's epic. Dude, it's uh, the power. It's the beauty of uh, the, the double-edged sword of social media, which is what I just saw this picture of you and somebody else standing with what look like wakeboards, but in full like snowboard gear kind of on this floating block of ice with this big glacier behind you. And I'm like, what's this? And there was just your caption that kind of barely touched on what you were doing. So I'd love to hear a little bit about that, man. Cool. Yeah, that was a that was an epic trip. That's for sure. I went with my uh, friend Andy Herbin to document kiteboarding and wakeboarding around the icebergs that are falling off the Columbia Glacier. Now, wow. if anyone's never been to Alaska, there's a great saying for it. It's saying if you're too old to get to Alaska, go now before you die because you'll never experience beauty like that before in your life. But if you're too young, wait to go to Alaska because if you go now, You'll experience the most beautiful place you ever have in your life, and everything else will be diminished because of it. Yeah, it really is yeah. one of the most spectacular, striking places in, in the world. And luckily enough for us, it's part of the United States. So as Americans, we get to go there whenever we want to. But um, learned a lot, too, about that place. And a little off topic, but the Columbia Glacier is the fastest receding glacier in North America right now. Um, when I was born in 1985, it was another two miles out into the sound 
uh, as opposed to where it is today and 2,000 feet up. Uh, so nice. to see that, see like icebergs the size of buildings falling off on a daily basis was humbling to say the least. But uh, we got, Andy and I got approached by a producer to go up there and shoot this documentary. Uh, so we flew out to uh, Prince William Sound. We got there uh, for a 10-day shoot and a total of eight and a half days. It was just the worst weather imaginable. Um, oh, man. Doing everything you could just to stay warm in your tent, keep it dry, and then keep the fire stoked was pretty much the activity of the day was keeping the fire stoked <laughs> and eating. Um, but then we got a couple of great days where the sun did pop out, get out in the sound and go uh, wakeboard around the icebergs. Uh, we used them as kickers and sliders and wall rides to do tricks off of them. Unbelievable experience. But uh, we use these dry suits in order to go out there. So no wetsuits. Just we used uh, our typical hoodies and long pants and, and jackets underneath the dry suit. But we set up a bonfire uh, on the shoreline uh, every day beforehand before we shoot just to warm up before getting out in the water. And uh, oh, once man. you put your dry suit on, you, you're kind of stuck but they have a little zipper to get inside if you need to take a, take a piss. Well, yeah. um, everything was kind of rushed. I didn't zip up my zipper there too well beforehand, and I got in the water, and I had a flood of 33-degree uh, water rushing on my, uh, my Prince William Sound, which was the worst, ex the worst pain I ever had in my life. <laughs> oh, <laughs> but it, wow. It, uh, it, uh, it was still like the adrenaline is so much that you don't really feel the cold until later. But on, on the way back from that, even though I was freezing, we had a pot of, uh, I think it was common dolphin surround us. And that must have been 400 or 500 of them. So we stopped wow. in the middle of sound, turned off the boat. They were playing all the way around us. And then orcas came through, got right next to the boat, uh, looked us in the eye, uh, saw, you know, you can see just the intelligence of these animals right there in front of you. It's, uh, it was a, an amazing experience. But yeah. then on the way home, we we had to call the uh, call the the whole trip short a day because a squall came through, started blowing fifty to sixty with eighty knot gusts, and we're oh. only in twenty foot tin boats. So uh, <laughs> I jumped on I jumped on the uh, the one boat, captain it out. It was a twenty foot boat, and we we're in fifteen foot seas. So you kind of had to take advantage wow. of where the trough and the peaks of the swell was to kind of get through it. But we got back to the, um, the, the marina uh, after an eight-hour boat ride of soaking wet, adrenaline-fueled fun. Wow. Yeah, that must have been a tough, a tough slog. I mean, how, so the air temp, what is that? I mean, 50s, 40s? What was – Yeah, when the squall came in, it got down to 42 air temp, oh, water temp man. 33. It was uh, yeah. cold. <laughs> You're just white-knuckling it, getting back, getting back home. Yeah, I, I was actually loving it, to tell you the truth. It was uh, – Oh, it, was, it was such a fun experience. After a short break, we'll get into spearfishing with Greg and hear about his time enjoying the pursuit in his local Florida waters, the Bahamas, and beyond. Stay with us. 
It's no secret that I love fish art, and Casey Scott, a name you'll hear a few times on today's episode, is one of my favorite marine artists out there. Whether it's blue marlin pushing bait or a hogfish hovering above his reef, Casey captures scenes of the wild that many of us lay awake at night only dreaming about. Have a look at CaseyScottArtist.com, and if you find a parallel artwork that you like, enter coupon code OCEAN20, that's on all caps, at checkout, and you'll get 20% off your order. And when you do, you'll be supporting this family-owned and operated business that's dedicated to helping us all grow our connection to the ocean. Like you never know when you're going to have an encounter with an animal. You could be fishing, diving, surfing, walking the beach. I mean, and then suddenly there's something there. And that's like so special. Like I had one of those just this Saturday, actually trying to SUP foil, which I'm really bad at fell, got back on my board. And I looked to the right and all of a sudden this humpback whale is like, rocketing out of the water like it looks like a freaking chevy truck 30 feet away from me you know like one of those moments where and it's gone but you have this you're left with this sense of connection that you didn't have before like when you saw those orca and those dolphins i mean that's what's so special about any activity in the water when you get those moments oh man it's too right and makes you feel uh really small really really small in this big ass place when you're in a city or anything like that you feel you don't feel anything like that or you would in nature. I know. And I love the humbling aspect of that too, not to kind of totally derail the conversation, but like with the, the orcas are looking at you going, what are you guys doing out here? Like you're so as humans, so not suited to be in this environment, you know, like I, I always trip when you, an animal kind of looks at you, you're like, where I'm just a complete foreign stranger pretending that like I can pull it out here, you know? <laughs> yeah, man. We're so lucky. We don't have like living in America. We have no real natural predators around us all the time. Walking through the woods. We're kind of safe. Yeah. You go elsewhere in the world where the predators are prolific, like in yeah. Africa, you can't just go walking through the woods and be comfortable and safe. No, you're going to get know. eaten. Here we're, here we're like, yeah, we could go for a run in our, in our yoga outfit and have no care in the world. <laughs> that's true that's true so uh let's shift over to like spearfishing another another activity in the water that is near and dear to you you've been out for a long time i'm guessing that you know your dad introduced you to that i mean where are you at with it today i mean talk about the gear you're using and some of the favorite fish that you are, are chasing yeah no uh spearfishing has always been a part of my life uh hunting has always been a part of my life um i i don't enjoy killing anything i really don't i've been a bow hunter my entire life in the, in the couple uh rocky mountains to uh spearfishing in in bahamas or in fiji or hawaii uh but i absolutely enjoy the rewards it gets from to me and to my family and friends i love the idea of going out in the wild and and putting yourself on the line to get your own food I think uh, it's hard for people to understand it if they don't experience it, but it connects you more with nature than any other thing possible because you do become part of it. You have to understand it. You have to understand the animals in, in depthly and intently and uh, understand their environment. So uh, like I said, my dad got me into it from a very early age and I just became obsessed with it. I became obsessed with the discipline of free diving and, and spearfishing. So we're very lucky to be living 60 miles away from Bahamas. So we're capable of running over there in the morning, spearfishing all day and running back home, being in our beds at night. In the Bahamas, you can't use a trigger system. You can only use Hawaiian sling or pole spear. 
which are very difficult to do because your range is really limited, maybe five feet, maybe max 10, 15 feet if you have a really good pole spear or Hawaiian sling. But the Hawaiian sling is more like the bow underwater. It's, it, it's very difficult to do as opposed to the spear gun, which we could use over in Florida. But, but arguably, um, to spearfish in Florida, it's very difficult and dangerous because the depths you go to, and we typically have a lot more current. Uh, but uh, our target fish over the Bahamas being grouper, black grouper, Nassau grouper, uh, yellow tail, yellowfin grouper, and then the hogfish with the occasional other ones mixed in between. But then the target fish over here in Florida is uh, we have we do have all that, but we do have the ability to go pelagic spearfishing, which is the open water, blue water fishing, spearfishing for mahi mahi. Wahoo, which is one of my favorites, and of course, cobia. And cobia are um, really wild fish to hunt because you have to call in bull sharks in order to be able to hunt them because cobia follow big predatory fish like bull sharks and even manta rays and, and turtles. But you call in the bull shark by chum, by making noise and flashers, and then the cobia come up next to them. But then you shoot the cobia off the back of the bull shark, which is really crazy because you have now 10, 15 bull sharks all riled up because you just shot a fish right off of them. But then if you have a good, you have to have a good crew. You have to have a good uh, backup system in the water of people that know what the hell they're doing because uh, you really do rely on them to get able to land those fish, whether it be to go down there and put a secondary shot in them or to be able to defend the shark off of you if you're when you're coming back up to the surface trying to bring the fish back in the boat. But um, that's one of the most delicious fish in the ocean, in my opinion, that and the wahoo. So when you do land it, it's uh, a good time to celebrate because you had to, you really just fought off a dozen or so sharks to be able to land a fish. <laughs> Dude, that's so cool. That's a total team sport right there. It, yeah. Yeah, it is. I, I, like... I don't recommend it to anybody. Um, there, there's absolutely a, a fad right now going around about shark diving, which is cool. I totally get it. It's great getting people in the water with shark with sharks to for them to really understand what those those species are. But um, it's there's some people out there doing it the right way, like my friends Nikki and Dante. Uh, they go over to Tiger Beach in Bahamas and they're hand feeding tiger sharks, but they understand it. They get those sharks. They've been around them for a long time. Then there are other people out there that are calling sharks like their pets and their dogs and things like this. They're not yeah. pets. They're not dogs. They don't know you by name. They don't care about you. They're just they're just looking to be fed. And they're now associating humans with food. They're getting comfortable. They're coming closer. Yeah. Um, I think it is a catch-22 with shark diving. It's getting very popular. But um, it's also maybe creating a false narrative of what these things are. Uh, yeah. Sharks are sharks. That's all they are. They've been around for millions of years. Since the dinosaurs, they want to eat. They want to make little pups. That's about it. Um, but I, even so, I still love getting people in the water to see sharks because it changes their perspective immediately. Uh, you know, you take someone from Texas, throw them in the water. They think they're going to immediately get eaten by a shark. Not yeah. the case. It's not the case yeah. at all. They're they're just as scared of us as we are of them. 
Right. Yeah. It's an interesting kind of issue or topic, you know, where the, on one side, which you're, what you're alluding to is the, the, the awareness, uh, the generation of awareness that, of what sharks are and they're not just man-eating machines, da, da, da. That's a great thing. As you mentioned, that's a, a one byproduct of just, you know, all the shark diving and interactions with folks and pictures on Instagram of people diving with sharks in the water, et cetera. But as you say, too, there's another side of that, which is some people that what will what will kind of come out of that which is the sharks are they're getting used to people being you know basically like my cats they want me to feed them <laughs> you know yeah. and they'll get they'll get in my face when i'm not you know so it's we'll see how that all shakes out <laughs> yeah yeah you know, cats is a good example it's more more so than dogs because dogs right. are a little bit more predictable cats yeah. you know yeah. I, I grew up with cat too you could be their best friend one second then they'll beat the hell out of you yeah scratch the shit out of you the next <laughs> it's very similar to shark but at the same time too the pop the popularity of shark diving is making it become a fad is making more attention to it which is great because then more money is going to shark conservation than ever before which is yeah. really needed and as sharks are at the brink of extinction yeah. Uh, until recently and now they're coming back strong the populations are coming back they are helping out the, the ecosystem they are an intricate part of the wildlife and it's needed so uh, that, yeah. there is a lot of good coming out of it too yeah 100 percent. so talk about the pole spear a little bit um me who shoots with you know just a regular uh, trigger gun a small hawaiian sling like you know i'm in a crack shooting with like a you know a three well probably a four foot hawaiian sling but then there's like the bigger models like the big the big game blue water um pole spears have you worked with those at all when you're out in the bahamas those big ones where you could shoot like a, a nice wahoo or something with absolutely uh there's some really good manufacturers out there creating blue water pole spears uh, you could use with float lines. You could use with reels. In fact, you know, even if you're hunting black grouper over the reefs in 30 feet of water, you need reels on your pole spears because they're oh. going to get rocked up or they're going to take off. Um, it's going to take maybe two or three more shots to bring up the, the fish. But um, to be able to use those big pole spears in blue water in the Bahamas is a new massive challenge. Because yeah. being in the blue water, being even if you have a 10-foot pole spear, you're not guaranteed to get close to any fish. Maybe mahi-mahi are because they're really dumb. But Oahu, that's next level. It is, right. That's very, very difficult to get. And um, I've never landed Oahu with a pole spear. It's definitely a challenge for me. I know a lot of people who have, and they've been trying for a long, long time. Hmm. But um, – that, I mean, that's a whole different program. It's a whole different level. You have to have patience. You have to have, you know, you have to have a damn good breath hold to be able to go down there and relax for a while until they come yeah. close. You really got to understand that fish and what it's capable of doing and how to bring it in. Yeah, man. Uh, it just sounds so cool. And I just, I've been looking at that, you know, where I am, there's no blue water hunting. I mean, there's Southern California, everything. And just so again, pole spears for us here is just like, poking down in, in rocks and crevices and there's no, you know, 60 pound grouper that you're just going to, you're going to need a reel for. But I just, I see the guys who are really stalking and kind of, it's a whole different type of hunting when you don't have the super long range of a four band gigantic, you know, six foot tall gun, you know, it's something very different. You know, I think it's just super, super elegant, you know? Um, now, 
out here, do you come out and have you been out here for like any of the Pebble Beach events with golf and gotten in the water and the freezing 50 degree kelp beds out here? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've got to play the AT&T Pro-Am back in 2008. And I've been coming out there for a long time just watching my dad play at Pebble and got to play Cypress, got to play down at Torrey Pines. Uh, nice. Torrey is one of my favorite places on the planet because you get to go down and surf blacks and get awesome yeah. beach break barrels. And then you get to go up to Torrey Pines, one of the best municipal golf courses on the planet, and make birdies alongside the beach looking down at where you just got barreled. <laughs> I mean, you, you yeah. can't ask for anything better. <laughs> Pretty special. Now, there's a corollary to that, back to Pebble Beach, which is um, – and you've probably stood – walked along pebble beach looking out and just imagining what is living in the reefs out there and then from that the seventh hole green which is like kind of iconic out on that point um you know this like a a nine iron shot it's a hundred plus yards out in the water like multiple lingcod holes out there you know so it's funny because i'll go out there dive and look back and like be hauling in fish or my buddies will and looking at pebble beach so next time you're out here man and you want to get out there and try to get into the in the kelp cold the cold stuff let me know <laughs> I, I would love to and i think that kelp hunting looks amazing man i've never mm -hmm. done it before but that looks so cool just stalking through the kelp beds yeah rad man well absolutely so then kind of towards golf a little bit here you know uh you mentioned it's a it's a big part of your life and one of the kind of the the, the themes i like to call out here when i talk with folks is the sense of flow you know and it, whether it's surfing whether it's stalking a fish it's quick kiting doesn't matter when everything kind of stands still right and all you're you're singularly focused on something and golf's one of those sports right where you're just unless you're in your own head and you're all you know weirded out which can happen but when you're in that sense of flow golfing's one of those things so just kind of talk about that kind of that overlap between your life in the ocean your life on the golf course and kind of you know how that all ties together Oh man! Well, speaking of flow, that would be the uh, million-dollar ticket to be able to understand how to enter the flow state in golf easier than just being able to yeah. click in, click out with <laughs> yeah. surfing or kiteboarding or wakeboarding or spearfishing. You know, when when you're you don't have time to think about the wave when you're dropping into the wave. You just have to react. You don't. You can't think about. Oh, did I leave my iron on? Oh, oh shit! What's my business doing right now? It when you're down to sixty feet trying to spear a fish in golf, you have to work your ass off to be able to block out all the other crap in your head so you can focus on your shot, which is the hardest part about it. I mean, on the range it's easy because you just hit balls, get free, doesn't matter where the ball goes. But when you get on the course and you got to commit to a shot, you got to put the ball on the green 200 out to have a chance for a birdie or if par yeah like, like i was saying you got thousands upon thousands of great golf swings out there picture perfect golf swings but to be able to convert that over to be able to do in a tournament it's a rare person and it's a rare feat um that's why you only see a handful of guys break through or girls break through to get on tour, to become a dominant figure, to be able to last a long career as a top player in the world, because there's very few that can do it when the time is needed. Just like in surfing, there's a very few that can almost in a way look like they're manufacturing the wave to come to them during the heat. Like Kelly Slater is known for that. He's known for that wave always comes to him when he needs it. No, the ocean doesn't know Kelly Slater's in the water. 
but Kelly knows intuitively from the decades of experience of being out there, but also it's bloody Kelly Slater. It's like, just like anyone else who's the top dog of their sport, it just clicks for them and they know how to do it. And uh, whether they, their brain intuitively gets in and out of the flow state or not, I, I don't know. It'd be a great study to see that done on them, but without a doubt, they can just push out all the yeah. other bullshit in life and focus on that singular goal and just be there in the moment, which is something it's awesome to behold. And it's even better to feel if you ever get that, get in that state. And I think, uh, the concept of flow is something pretty interesting. Um, there's a couple of good guys out there called, uh, one author, Stephen Coulter. He's wrote a couple of good books on this. He's got a couple of good po- podcasts on this, but, um, action sports, believe it or not, is the best yeah. way to enter the flow state. And um, being in the water or being on top of the mountain or ready to drop into a vert ramp, it doesn't matter. I mean, if, if you yeah. commit to it and if you are got your confidence, be able to enter the flow state, it's all time kind of dissolves away and you can kind of slow down. It's a beautiful thing, but damn hard to be able to consciously click into. Yeah, it really is, man. And it's it's such a fascinating aspect of of life in general. You know, I mean just just to be able to slow yourself down to have a conversation a hard conversation with somebody, slow yourself down to make a decent golf shot or if you're a baseball player at the plate and or breathing up to go dive 80 feet or something, you know. It's all really the same. And so it's it's always fascinating to hear how people prepare themselves, you know. So staying on golf, c- curious now after uh you know, who uh, our mutual friend, Casey Scott, who, you know, amazing artist. I mean, one of my favorite, probably yours as well, you know, introduced us. And so who was also, you know, a, a pretty good stick on the course, you know, former golf pros. So when you guys go battle it out on the course, who's the one who, who basically has to buy the beers at the end of the round? Oh, it definitely it depends on the day. <laughs> Casey's a phenomenal golfer. He definitely sells himself short about when he talks about his game. And that's like what any anyone good at something, if they're not at the top of their game or if they've taken some time off and they're feeling a little rusty, they're going to feel like they suck because they're used to a certain level. Um, Casey was a professional golfer. He could still be if he wanted to. He could still go out there and shoot under par in 68s and 65s if he really put the time and effort into it. Talk about your your endeavor, man. You're the Shark Wake Park, you know, a cable park in Florida there. It looks so fun. Um, how did that come to be? And just wh- what is that, man, for folks who might not know what a cable park is? Uh, cable park is a way to do water sports behind the boat without the boat. So we use overhead cable systems like a ski lift up and down mountain uh, to pull multiple people around the lake in a sensual circle that can go continuously for if your arms could hold on. So a boat 10 years ago was 60 grand to get into, which is still, which is a lot of wow. money, but today is ballooned up to about 240 grand for the top of the line, <laughs> yeah. boat, which is insane. There's not many people out there, let alone kids who have access to that kind of boat. The cable park knocks it all down. It allows everyone to participate in water sports, to gain entry into water sports. For $32 for a two-hour pass, you can come to Shark Wake Park and learn from a coach how to ride. And then from there, 
you can get into the sport from uh, season pass that ranges just over a thousand dollars just to be able to rock up to a ko park as your gym or as your hobby or as your community it's an amazing thing man because you're gonna leave tired you're gonna leave exhausted you're gonna leave um like you would just leaving the gym but you're also out there riding a board on top of the water chance to enter the flow state which is so good for your 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 brain and your mental capabilities and then then being able to say like like every other sport we talked about from spearfishing to surfing to golf, it's extremely, it's extremely not difficult to learn because you don't get into it, but it's something you do for a very long time. And it's something you could always learn at. Every day you go to the park or every day you go to the course or every day you go in the ocean. Greg and I love to check one of those things out. So folks listening want to learn more. It's, it's sharkwakepark.com and there's some rad video. It just looks like a pretty freaking rad place to, to go. And there's a giant shark painted on the side by our favorite artist, Casey Scott as well. Um, so, uh, yeah, man, congrats on opening that thing up and, uh, best of luck with that business. And Greg, I want to thank you for sharing with us today and appreciate you sticking through all of our, uh, internet connection problems, but man, I've had a ton of fun just hearing about all the cool things you're up to. Josh, I really appreciate the time doing this interview with me, man. It was a lot of fun. Absolutely, man. Yeah. And if you're ever out at Pebble here, when I get it. Hey everybody. Thanks for being here today. Listen to this podcast episode. Really appreciate it. If you like what you heard, I'd love if you went to Spotify and hit me with a follow there. Uh, told a friend and decided to support the podcast ongoing. Could go to check us out at patreon.com slash this ocean life podcast, where for less than the cost of a cup of Starbucks coffee, you can help grow the podcast over time. Thanks again, you all. Hope you're getting out in the water and we will see you next time.